Welcome to Strength for the Journey from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu at Ko'olau. Life can be challenging, especially when you're in a deep valley. Those times can challenge your faith in God. What do we do then? Here's First Pres Assistant Pastor Steve Page with the sermon, Help My Unbelief. Oh, thank you, choir. Thank you, worship team. And thanks to all of you. I know I kind of kid you guys in the beginning, like, hey, yeah, sing your lungs out, you know. But really, you know, I, I got to be honest with you, as a preacher, when you come up here in the atmosphere of God-centered, God-focused, God-honoring worship, to speak the Word of God, it just feels so different. So I greatly appreciate all of you, you know, for contributing and co-creating the worship experience of this morning. Now, if you're able, please stand with me as I read the Word of the Lord from uh, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14, and it goes like this. When they, and this was Jesus and three of his disciples, when they came to the other nine disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were immediately overcome with awe and they ran forward to greet him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes into the ground and foams and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. And he answered them, you faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And and when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. He has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you spirit that keeps this boy from speaking and hearing, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he was able to stand. And when he had entered the house, Jesus, that is, His disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast him out? And he said to them, this kind can come out only through prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, well, as you see, we continue today in our Hope Restored series as we wind our way again through the Gospel of Mark. Last week, we, had, we saw in the Scriptures this mind-blowing incident, you know, where Jesus is transfigured on this mountain as he's accompanied by three of his disciples. You know, Moses shows up, Elijah shows up, you know, and in that scenario, Jesus physically radiates this shining glory so great that Mark, you know, he tries to describe in a kind of a funny way, he, he dist- tries to describe this dazzling splendor. And, and even in, at that, and on, on that mountain, the voice of the Father God spoke, and, which is a rare thing you see in the New Testament. I mean, oh, when you think about what, what that was on the top of that mountain there, I mean, it was, must have been just so breathtaking. However, 
as sublime and as dramatic and as spectacular of all, all of that was, we see in our story today, and this is really important to get, we see that this extraordinary and, and seemingly otherworldly power doesn't just stay up on the mountain. But it is brought near. It is brought to bear on the nitty-gritty everyday life. It is brought to bear into people's pain and despair. Brought to bear on people's on people and places where life isn't always dazzling, where life can be often confusing, where life can often shake our faith and often drain our souls. Because down from that mountain is the place where many who follow God live in what I call that space between. That space between hope and disappointment. Between faith and doubt. That space between belief and unbelief. Do any of you know that space I'm talking about this morning? And maybe this is why the story of this father and this son has meant so much to so many Christians over this century because our journeys with God, if we're really honest, is so much like the father and the son. That journey between God's promises and our pain. In verse 14, it points out that, that Jesus and his three disciples come down the mountain and into a gathering of a big crowd. And in the middle of that crowd, there's this heated dispute with the nine other the apostles and some Jewish scribes. The word there in verse 14 and later in 16 that for argue means, means to be, it's a very forceful disagreement. In other words, there's really major heat going on in the midst of that crowd. Now, you should know that the scribes are Jewish teachers of the Hebrew scriptures. But in the gospel, they are often portrayed as antagonistic and opposed to Jesus and his ministry. So what does this all mean for us here in this scenario? Well, the discipleship's failure to cast out that demon from the boy gives the scribes further ammunition to undermine the teachings and the way and the ministry of Jesus. Now, to be fair, Mark chapter 6, we do see all of these guys, all of these disciples able to cast out demons. As you see here, the disciples went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, have you ever had that happen to you where you did something? God seemed to, to bless it so abundantly before, and then another time you tried the very same thing and bam, a real bomb. Ever happened to you? I've done this many times with sermons I've preached or classes I've taught. It's great in one place, or it was really great with this age group. So I'm thinking, hey, I got something here. So I go to another place and another age group, and what? Boom, a bomb. You know, I mean, when that stuff happens, I mean, you could really question yourself. Am I, am I really fit for this? I wonder if the disciples might have struggled. Like, am I fit for this? Can I handle this? So as Jesus is asking, what in the world is everybody arguing about? Verse 17 and 18, the father steps up and he says this, Teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes in the ground. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out. But they could not do so. Now, this phrase, could not do so, sounds kind of nice in English. But in verse 18, it's, you know, it's actually a little more stinging in the original language. See, in the Greek, more accurately, it's a, it's a phrase that means they proved too weak. They couldn't handle. They were defeated in a power struggle. Now, imagine someone saying that about you in front of your boss. You know, Jesus, I came here to do business with you, but your managers over here didn't have what it took. They were too weak to handle it. 
Wow, what a sting the disciples might have felt in that moment. And then to add salt to the wound, Jesus responds responds with deep exasperation to what he hears. Look at verse 19 here. It says, he answered them, you faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? I I want to do a real Jersey version of that, you know what I mean? (laughs) How much longer do I got to put up with you? (laughs) Bring the boy to me. And what is hard to know for certain is the word them there in that verse. You know, what is it them pertaining to? Is it just the disciples? Is he using the word generation just for like nine guys? Was he referring to the scribes or the crowd? Was he referring to the scribes, the crowd, and the disciples altogether? Or was it simply more a general expression of exasperation about the whole human environment? It's hard to tell. All we know for sure is he sounds really exasperated. You know, and I got to, I'm just speculating on my own. I'm thinking, you know, I wonder if he's thinking, you know, a half hour ago, I'm with Elijah and Moses. I'm shining like holy cow. And now I'm stuck here with you, Jamokes. Mike and back. It's in the New Jersey version. Now, now to be fair to Jesus, the disciples, to be quite honest with you, I mean, he sounds exasperated, but to be fair to Jesus, you know, the disciples display sporadic incompetence and incomprehension throughout the, his ministry. Remember that screaming fit of fear on the Sea of Galilee when a storm came? Remember the skepticism they had about feeding 5,000 from a little bit of bread and fish, and then again a little while later feeding 4,000 with a little bread and fish? Remember Jesus having to rebuke Peter, get behind me, Satan. The list of their faux pas is very long, folks, and to be quite honest with you, their obtuseness is going to get worse before this gospel ends. Yet, And this is a really big yet that I want us to absorb. Jesus sticks with them. We see at the end of this passage that we read where Jesus is speaking to the disciples now privately in a home. He explains why this kind of demon is difficult to cast out. And my point about, I would love to expand on that, but I just want to make the point that this is as exasperated as Jesus is about his disciples, he continues to disciple these guys who found it often difficult to do the right thing and get it right. And I find this incredibly encouraging because it says to me, despite my wobbly spirituality sometimes, Jesus doesn't dismiss us as others might, like our teachers might or our bosses might, maybe even as our parents might. But just as a good and healthy parent who has to deal with their own naive and blundering and bungling child, Jesus speaks the truth and then helps to instruct them to get them to a better place in love. My point is he never gives up on them, even here. And he never gives up on you. He never gives up on you. And this leads me to one of my favorite dialogues in all of the Gospels. Me personally, this is my own favorite here, verses 21 and 22, where Jesus asks the Father, so how long has this been happening to him? And his Father said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into the fire, into the water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and enter viscerally into the suffering and desperation of this father up to this point. He has seen his son have near fatal convulsions often. Moreover, in Luke's account of this incident, it says that this is his only son. 
Imagine what it would be like for that father over the years, because apparently it's been going on for quite a while. What is it like for that father to try and care for and protect his son, yet, yet feel so, so helpless and impotent to relieve his beloved son's suffering? Some of you in this room may know that journey. As a father myself, I can tell you no father can handle much of that without falling apart a little bit. My point is, this is a very emotionally and psychologically intense, pain-forged situation. So now, given the apparent failure of Jesus' disciples, the father asked Jesus to help, but he asked with a certain degree of uncertainty for Jesus to act. You know, he says, if you are able do something. Can you help us? Let me ask you something. Has unresolved pain and a string of disappointments ever made your faith a little uncertain over time? Sometimes it feels like it's a slow drip, just like a slow drip on a rock. Our disappointments accrue and accrue and accrue and it wears down our faith, doesn't it sometimes? Like that bonus from work we thought was a sure thing but we never got. That job we thought we would land, but we never got it. The healing we thought would quickly come, but yet we remain in pain. The relationship we thought would exceed expectations, but ended in a disaster. All these buts piling up and piling up in our lives, they do start to wear down a person's faith, even the best of us. And after a while, you feel like it just hurts to hope. Have you been that place? It just hurts to hope too much. You lower your bar for expectations about the Christian life, about God and all kinds of things. Yet, yet this father, somewhere beneath the disappointments of that day, below the, the pain of the years, he clung to a very thin thread of faith to Jesus. And so he tries one more time to ask for healing of his son. He says, if you're able to do anything, have compassion on us and help us. See, I'm not even sure he's like asking for a full deliverance. Just if you can do anything. And then Jesus picks up on his verbiage and, and he uses the same verbiage as the Father and he says in verse 23, if you are able. I wonder if he says that with a wry smile. If you are able. All things can be done for those who believe. And then here is what really fascinates me about the whole dialogue, almost impulsively, without hedging, without pretending to be some kind of pillar of faith, and likely with tears in his eyes and a strain in his voice, we hear one of the most common and relatable statements in all of Scripture. Immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. See, the father doesn't just mumble that out. It says he cried out. The word means to shout out. You think I'm loud. You should have heard him. In other words, this is definitely an intense and very loud expression of desperation. Can you hear that voice? Can you feel that voice? Let me make a couple of quick points before I move on here. First of all, look, I am so impressed by the Father's authenticity and integrity in this moment. No pious smokescreen here. No pretense. No pretending how spiritual he is. Just the bare, naked truth of where he really stood in that moment. Don't you love folks who are like that? 
Folks who are just, just totally real. How many times do we Christians find ourselves feigning some sort of spiritual strength when we actually feel so weak? You know, there have been more than a few times in my own journey with Jesus where I've gone through a season where I really have felt God's absence. And I've had in those times, people come up to me, and they know you're kind of, you know, wobbly there, and I always like it. They don't just, how you doing? They'll say, how are you really doing, Steve? That word really makes a difference, doesn't it? Huh? How you really doing, Steve? And, 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 and you know what happens sometimes? I stand there as the Reverend Steve Page, a man who's supposed to be a pillar of faith and integrity, and I throw out a big, loud, hypocritical, I'm doing great. God is good. What a liar. Why does this happen? Why among the Christian community do we find it so often, too often, to be real? Why is there so much, among Christians, so much hiddenness and pretense? Why are we not the most open and authentic people the world has ever seen? Why? Why especially us men? I'm going to, just to pick on some men a little bit here. Why is it that we men struggle with hiddenness and pretense? Why is that? Why do we feel like it's such a great challenge to open up about things that really plague us? This is where I want to put in a shameless plug for the men's ministry of this church. You know, in, sorry, but I, you're going to get an advertisement here because this is really important. You see, we ha- I want you to know, you know those, the, the picture of the three of us up there, me and the two other guys, the, the two of the leaders on the team? By the way, somebody, instead of saying the Trinity, somebody leaned back and said to me, you mean the three stooges. But anyway, <laughs> uh, where am I here? I, but yeah. But here's the thing about the men's ministry. In that ministry, we have a lot of guys in the leadership team. And I'll tell you what, every one of them to the person is dedicated to being real. And if you come on Thursday nights here, and if you come to our men's retreats, you will meet men. I promise you, you will meet men that are strikingly and refreshingly honest and real. But why? Why are we so committed to that standard to being real? Because we all know. We know that we can only heal, we can only grow to become the men of God that he created us to be through the truth. You've heard me say this before, folks, we cannot heal what we don't reveal. We cannot fix what we will not face. We cannot overcome what we overlook. As writer James Baldwin has said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And nothing would get better with this man until he stood so fully bare before Jesus and blurted out the deepest truth and deepest condition of his soul. I believe, help my unbelief. You see, Jesus gets to, I mean, he could have done something right away. He wants the father to get to this point. Jesus, he doesn't just want to heal the boy. He wants to heal the father. He wants to instill in him a rock-solid faith, a rock-solid hope that he has never known before. But before that man can come to that place, he needed the truth of his soul to be laid bare before the Savior. So I'm asking you, can we do the same with each other? What is the cost to our journeys with Jesus if we cannot? And the second thing I want to point about this dialogue is this. The seemingly ambivalent words of the Father have long been the journey of the people of God throughout Scripture. 
When we look at the Psalms, for example, written thousands of years ago, we often see words, we often see journeys like that of the Father. Listen to Psalm 22, and you tell me if you can hear the ambivalence, if you could tell me that you hear belief and unbelief, and it goes like this. I'm just gonna pick parts out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from, from saving me, so far from my words, my groaning? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. Can you hear the pain? Can you hear the fear? Can you hear the doubts that God is still with him? Anyone relate to that? Yet amidst, amidst all of that, He also says this later on. You who fear the Lord, praise him. You offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard me when I cried to him. Notice that wrestling match. Notice the ping pong back and forth of feeling forsaken, far from God, not heard by God, and yet at the same time, having faith that God will hear me, will face me, and deal with my cries for help. And just like the father in our story today, even in the midst of his feelings of doubt and pain and disappointment, he also has faith. I believe, he says, help the unbelief. Have you ever been in that place with God? I believe you and I question you. Straight up. That place of, look, I'll be honest, Lord, I'm not sure you're here with me in this. Here in this struggling relationship. Here in my confusion about my future. Here in the pressures uh, of my career demands. Here in my ailing health. I'm not sure you're here. Have you been in that ambivalent place with Jesus? Now, what does Jesus do with this man's ambivalence? Does he look at the guy and say, well, look, pal, until you get this straightened out, I'll come back later and deal with it. Does he do that? No. He delivers the boy from demonic torture right there in the midst of belief and unbelief. He brings the blessing of the kingdom of God. And perhaps because of this story, or maybe stories like this throughout the church history, Jude, that little tiny book in the New Testament, writes in his brief letter this, be merciful to those who doubt. Now, given how often we are exhorted in the New Testament to be people of faith, why is there this gracious plea to be merciful to those who doubt? Why even include this if faith is so central to our lives with God? Well, let me give you two quick things. First, this. Sometimes, sometimes if we really deal with doubts, doubts can transform us for our good. And that might sound odd. But sometimes pain and fear and doubt often start to create questions in us that we've never considered before, so they stretch us. Pain and doubt and fear motivate a seeking where we might have become settled. Doubt can open the soul to the has been numbed to the suffering of our world. Sometimes our confusion opens our minds to new perspectives that we've never had before, and it opens up our hearts to hear God's voice anew like we've never heard it before. How many of you have had that experience? 
How many of us have come on the other side of pain and doubt and, and, and you say to yourself, look, I thought I knew what life with God was about, but now I got a whole different understanding on a different level. How many of us have been there? But to give such growth a chance to arise in our lives, we need to be merciful. We need to give space. We need to give time. We need to give help to those who doubt. Now, second, I want to say this. Perhaps it is because uh, this is written, because if we Christians are not merciful to what is the experience of every follower at some point in their journey with God, the church will be reduced to hiddenness, pretense, and phoniness. And perhaps most importantly, we will suffer from the lack of resolution to our doubts. When we can't be merciful to those who doubt, we can't be merciful to normal things like anger and sorrow, frustration, then those things will be hidden and downplayed and even silenced. And if we end up trying to deny these very important, very normal aspects of being human, very normal aspects of being a Christian, if we deny those things, it'll only leave us in more pain. If we want doubt to go away, we don't submerge it, we don't deny it, we face it, we walk into it with others and we deal with it. Now, to be honest, not all of us do well sometimes when we're listening to a lot of spiritual or emotional chaos or stubborn doubts of other people. Sometimes these strong expressions and strong feelings feel overwhelming and we all get a little stuck in trying to minister to people that way. So let me offer you a little help when that comes up. Of all the things, and there's a lot of things I suggest, I'm just going to say a few things that you can help others walk through doubt. First is this. Listen and empathize and resist the urge to theologize or give scripture that contradicts the, someone's pain. Very important you understand that. You know, when, when, when someone feels ignored by God, it may not be very helpful to respond, but you know in his word it says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Really? I didn't know that. <laughs> Praise God, I'm cured. As theologically correct and as well-intended as that scripture, the use of that scripture is, more than likely it's not going to help because, because it could serve to invalidate a person's visceral and emotional and existential experience. You see, the reality of a lot of folks is like the words of this one pastor who said these words at his 24-year-old son's funeral. While the words of the Bible are true, grief renders them unreal. Do you know that living? This is so crucial to understand as we seek to serve and minister to people who have gone through the ringer. If we, if we only try to address the rational intel, intellect of our hurting person, of a, of a scared person, of a confused person, and we do not address that painful emotional aspect of that person, we may not end up helping them. In fact, we may end up hurting them. And I say that because the person we're going to feel, they're going to feel this, you don't get me. You don't get what I'm going through. If you want to help people through a change of heart, empathy and listening are very good first responses that go a long way. I mean, look how Jesus asked the Father in verse 21. So tell me, tell me the story about this. Now, did Jesus have to ask him that? Why didn't he just zap the kid right there? He wants the, the Father to share the story. In the midst of this intense situation, what does Jesus want to do even before he heals? He first wants to listen. 
And science proves him right. It shows that people are more open to change their mind and change their lives after at least three things are experienced from other people. First, they need to feel heard. They need to feel understood. They need to feel validated. In other words, they need to feel from you and I, you get me. To validate someone's doubt or anger at God is not the same thing as agreeing with them. It's simply expressing to them, hey, I get what you're going through. I can totally understand why you feel pretty ignored by God right now. Why that you can feel so angry at Jesus right now. You see, when we validate someone's grief and pain, then the words of Scripture can become real again. Very often, and this is really important to understand, very often doubt is not due to some intellectual wall that's going on in someone's mind. It is often rooted, deeply rooted in emotional wounds, in emotional scars, in emotional pain in that person's journey. The doubt of this father was not an intellectual doubt. It is what I call a pain-forged doubt. And I can assure you so many people who have doubts have pain-forged doubts, not intellectual ones. And we Christians need to understand that and be adept at helping people in it. So personally, when I finally see a person and I, you know, I'll listen and empathize and all these kinds of things, let them tell their story, however angry they get, when I finally see that they feel, that they feel like I get them, then I might open up scripture to them and I might read them Psalm 22 or Psalm 6 or 13 or whatever. In other words, what I do is I give them scripture that will first validate their experience, not correct it and not fix it, but validate it. Very often when I do that, you'd be surprised. Very often when I do that, people listen. They couldn't believe the word of God really speaks to their life. And they're going like, yes, that's exactly what I feel. That's exactly what I'm going through. And now, at that place, only now they are open to change their hearts. Finally, now they're ready to embrace my assistance. Finally, now the words of the Bible can become real again. As one wise Old Testament theologian wrote, the first condition of healing is to give voice to pain. And as a Christian philosopher, Dallas Willard, once said, the first act of love is to listen, which is exactly what was going on between the Father and Jesus. Jesus Jesus gives the Father listening space. He gives the Father listening time to give voice to his pain. The bottom line, folks, it is difficult to get back to faith unless we first express our pain, however theologically incorrect that expression may be. So my question as I'm finishing up here is this. Can you be that safe, wise Christian, brother or sister, with whom that journey of doubt, that journey of pain, that journey of theological incorrectness can be entrusted? What is the cost to our community if we cannot. So now how about you as we finish up here? Are you here today with pain forged doubts? Are you here with feelings like you're just stumbling through life? Trying hard to make sense of this journey you find yourself on that you didn't really expect or want to be on? Are you there today? Will you open your wounded heart to the power, to the power of and presence of Jesus will you allow the doubts of your mind be infused with the promises and the hope of our Savior what is God saying to you today if you maybe maybe you feel like that writer of Psalm 22 maybe today you feel like you live exactly in the house that is on the corner of belief and unbelief anybody live there today 
Maybe that's where you're at. I invite you to settle your heart, open your spirit, and listen to the words of this final song. And let the Spirit of God speak to your wounded, doubt-stained, threadbare faith and see what he has to say to you. So the invitation stands for everyone here. You know, the chance to believe, for some of us to believe again. Chance to take one more step in and through the doubt and towards the Savior. After service, we're going to have a prayer team to my right and to my left. And maybe the only word you have to say to them is, I believe, help my unbelief. And they'll be happy to pray with you. If you've been on a fence with God about Jesus, if you, like the words of this song, need to come home and need to just, if you would just take that chance to give your life to him, I'm going to pray a short prayer here in a second for you. But is God telling you, come, my son, my daughter, give your life to me. I will make you whole. I will bless you with my love. If you're able, please stand with me as I pray and then give a blessing. For those of us who need to maybe do business with God, maybe it is time to finally give your heart, soul, mind, and strength to Jesus. Just pray this simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I want to believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, take me as I am with my threadbare faith in you and hold me and embrace me. I need you and I give my life to you. And for the rest of us, I give this blessing. Now may the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit fill you with a sense of hope. May he give you a re-strengthening of your soul. And when you leave here today and live into this week, may you bring the great dazzling grandeur that happened on the mountain into the streets of the everyday world. And may you become the words, the ears, the arms, and the hands of Jesus to a world that lives on the corner of belief and unbelief. To him be all the glory. And in his powerful name we pray, amen. Even our wailing and railing against God, He is there. If you call on Him, He is there. Even in those times when your faith wavers, God is always there. If you'd like to hear this sermon again, you can listen to and download this and other sermons from the First Press website, fpchawaii.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Join us at one of our worship services on campus at 45550 Keona Ole Road, Kaneohe, Hawaii, 96744. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 930, and 1111. Follow First Prez on Twitter and Facebook. Download the brand new First Prez app. Watch First Prez sermon videos on our website and on Facebook. And if you need more, you can call us at 808-532-1111. For Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Prez, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you and thank you for listening. Strength for the Journey is copyright 2018 and produced by the media ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu at Ko'olau.